uh, Keith called me, and he had a couple of interesting testimonies. He was in Rome and saw the Sistine Chapel and some of the stuff in Rome. So that was an interesting story. And then he ended up on a plane talking with a Jewish guy and witnessing to him. Is that right? So tell your story. Well, I, I was at a conference, a business conference, and one of the things that they did was have this private tour of the well, I don't know if it's private, but at least a tour of the Pope's chambers from at the Vatican. And while we were going through the these Pope's chambers, they came on one where there's all these books in this amazing bookcase. And what it was is I think it's Pope Leo the Thirteenth back in the 1840s, so what, 150 years ago, decided that God had told him that Mary was conceived of a virgin as well, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And he uh, spoke that ex cathedra, meaning as the voice of God, he declared a new doctrine that Mary was uh, conceived of a virgin as well. And all these books were all the different languages that that dictum was translated into. And really what it was a shock to me to see how when people claim to speak for God and people would say, okay, he speaks for God, the impact that has on the world from that dumb little little statement because you know, Mary worship and the concept of, of elevating Mary was really, you know, brought into being or, you know, much solidified with what I saw. It was just an odd concept to see that face to face. Not until 1840. Yeah, it's just recent. It's very, very recent. And it's not in the Bible. They're not claiming it's in the Bible. It's because the Pope said so. Wow. And uh, that was, it was just something that's tangible. You see, you know, people who claim to speak for God, and they say, well, the Pope doesn't really do that. Well, I'm telling you, the Pope really does, and it's there documented, and it has a big impact on the world that we live in. Uh, secondly, I was, I, I've been working through some maybe weird ideas uh, from Genesis, uh, and I, I think my articles are on the Worldview Weekend Network, but uh, they've been helping in witnessing or talking to uh, mystics. I was on my way home from New York uh, Thursday night, and I just sat next to this guy. He was in his maybe uh, mid-60s, and I said, well, what are you doing? And he had a, a pretty strong accent, and he was uh, going to a alternative medicine conference here in Minneapolis, and he's actually a speaker, and he's speaking on hypnotism and the value of hypnotism to heal memories and to uh, heal people. So that's interesting. And uh, he was actually a fourth-generation Jew from Palestine, which aren't very many, because he was living, his great-great-grandparents came to Jerusalem in 1840. So we started talking, and I uh, said, well, how does this work? Because it was very similar to what Bob was going to be talking about on healing of the memories, only he was going at it a little bit different way. And then I started saying, well, I believe, you know, God, the Spirit, actually talked to men at one time physically, and it was an objective thing. And I really don't like mysticism. I think that it's uh, it's seductive and it's destructive. Oh, really? Why would you say that? And we had an hour and a half discussion on on that God speaks to us objectively. And at one point in time, he came as a man so he could give us the words of God as men. And we could hear him with real little ears and understand his voice. And that Moses had decreed at the time of uh, Sinai that approaching God freestyle or approaching the spirit world freestyle wasn't right. He goes, well, people get healed. People are, are helped. I said, yes, but 
all pain isn't bad. It was the pain of leprosy that drove Naaman to come, the goyim, the, the Gentile, to come to God and actually ended up worshiping God when he was healed. He was claiming that he could just heal bones with his, with his hands and so forth. They said, if, you're, if someone's healed and comes to you and is healed and you lead them because you say this is from God and you worship the God of heaven who created heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's one thing. But if they leave your healing, giving thanks to some nebulous force, you've led them astray and you've led them away from God. And if they get healed now and there's an eternity, as I believe, and they're damned for eternity. What you've done is not love. And he kind of shook him up a little bit. <laughs> and, 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 and you can't, you can't uh, uh, go through life saying that all freedom from pain is good because God uses pain to bring us to him. And if you're using these spiritual powers as a way to heal people and you leave them damned, that's a, that's a, that's a problem, not a, not a benefit. And you're, the world is worse off. Because I promise you, in a hundred years, the pains that they feel now aren't going to be what's critical. It was just a, a very good conversation, and uh, I think I gave. Well, he was uh, kind of distressed a little bit. He didn't have uh, quite the same uh, assurance that we were talking about when we first started. He kept on saying, "I need to hypnotize you." I said, I don't think you can. I think I'm pretty strong. I need, he said, I need to hypnotize you. That would straighten you out, right? That would keep you from believing in that Jesus who came in the flesh. So anyhow, Keith got a chance to share tangibly the gospel with a guy who's into New Age healing. So I thought it was a pretty interesting story. So I asked him to share it with our Sunday school here today. Okay. Um <clears throat> Thanks, Keith. And uh, the reason we keep teaching the Scriptures is so that all of us will be equipped to do that. That when we talk to somebody, we can tell them forthrightly what we believe and why we believe it. That's all God expects of us. We can't convert anybody, but we can tell them the truth. So uh, that's what we need to do. God converts them. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Well, I'll, start with, I'll just start reading with verse 8 so we can start the beginning of a sentence. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in the Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we, are, we despaired even of life. Indeed, <clears throat> indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. So, I believe that we talked about that. Did anybody take notes? Did we talk about verse 8 or 9? I mean, the reason I don't, if I don't mark down where we were, I'm just studying ahead. I'm on, I'm on, I can't remember where we were because I'm studying 2 Corinthians all the time. Alright, so I don't think we did verse 9, and I have a little thing that says start, so let's just believe that that was correct. Okay, 2 Corinthians 1 9. We had the sentence of death within ourselves, and that relates to the phrase, we despaired of life. And so this sentence of death is an interesting, um, um, phrase, and I don't think it means literally they were sentenced to death by some tribunal or what have you, but that they, in a sense, were like those who are facing death. Let me find my notes on this here. Again, like I said, I'm studying one place, and then I go backwards when I was trying to teach it. 
get my mind back to, to that part. Okay, here's a citation from uh, this wonderful commentary by uh, Garland. He says this. The word translates, translated sentence, apokrima, does not refer to a judicial sentence, but was used in the official language of the early empire for an answer or decision that settles a petition or inquiry from an embassy. Paul, therefore, does not refer to a judgment handed down by some magistrate, but to an answer he received for a petition he made to God. We may not be certain precisely what the answer of death was, but Paul makes clear what God's decision meant. He received it in order that he might solely rely upon God who raises the dead. Okay? So the sentence of death was something was a... Um, from God, not from a magistrate. And it was, I think, that referring to something like Romans 8 that we read last week at the very end. In Romans 8, it talks about uh, we're all the day long like sheep turned over to the slaughter. And so, I think you could look at it two ways. One of them, spiritually, um, because it says that Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Oh, hi. Welcome back, artist. <laughs> nice to have you back with us. We prayed for you. <laughs> and um, we, so in a sense, every believer that's carrying a cross, the only reason a person would care, well, I should ask this question. Why would somebody be carrying a cross in the ancient world? They're condemned. They're sentenced to death. So spiritually, it's as if we're walking through life dead to this world anyhow, and alive to God. And we also know that life is short, and so we could die at any time. So we don't live as ones whose hope is only in this world, but ones who are trusting in Christ who has been raised from the dead, and we have an eternal hope based on Him. Well, it's just, just a reflection of the verse 8 in front of when they had afflictions. Yeah. We have afflictions and we're commanded and told to pray to God in our afflictions. And whatever God said, it was not necessarily a deliverance from the afflictions themselves, but giving him hope eternally. So you have afflictions. God, help me in my afflictions. My grace is sufficient for you. Go through your afflictions and I promise you're going to have an eternity with me. Something like that. That's exactly what happens in Second Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, which was an affliction. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. I mean, so, so he, he has trusts. a sentence of death because he has to go, you know, die through yep. these things. Yep. And uh, it's not so fun. And another thing that we know that Paul's experience made him trust God more. And we looked up a passage of Psalm 119. I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, remember, it said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I've trusted thy word. And so God uses the afflictions in the life of a believer to to remind us that we're dead to this world anyhow because we're carrying our cross and that God has promised us eternal life and the resurrection from the dead and that afflictions are there to remind us that we need to trust God. And that's exactly what Paul's experience made him trust God all the more. So we had this answer of death or this uh, this petition that received its answer and the answer was death, meaning he's probably... You're going to die anyhow. <laughs> and you're here not to serve yourself, but God. And so press forward in, because this is what life is like. And notice that the result, there's an in order that or a purpose clause here. 
The reason for the sentence of death in ourselves, Paul says, is this. In order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So the lesson to be learned is to not trust self, but to trust God who raises the dead. And this is a big alleviation of fear. This is a powerful way that God delivers believers from fear. And uh, the greatest fear is the fear of death. It says in Hebrews that, for, that, that Satan held us in bondage to the fear of death all of our lives. But Jesus came to deliver us from that. Okay? And only God can do this. Uh, I think it helps going through afflictions. I know I had way more fears. What was, I don't know why I was thinking about this today. Well I, was, well, I was reading in the paper today. I always get up early and read the paper every day. And I got up and I was reading the paper about these people that are losing their job at Ford. And um, we know Skip, one of our elders, is one of the persons who works for Ford here that's losing his job. And so they were telling the story of these different people that didn't know what they were going to do or how they were going to ever be able to, you know, because it was a very good job and now it's just going to go away. And this one lady said, well, I'm going to get so much money, I could get an education, but then I don't know how I'll pay my bills between now and then. And so I was thinking about um, how God has been gracious when I was in my 30s. Whenever some bad news was on the horizon, it was so hard. I, I don't know why it was, but when I was in my 30s, I worried a lot more than I do now. And I would wonder, how am I going to pay my bills? What's going to happen to me? And I, one time I went 10 years without ever getting a raise. Uh, uh, 10 straight years. And the price of living kept going up and I didn't get, I had less to live on all the time so I had to fix old beat up cars because we could never have a car payment. And Bert used to help me do that, didn't you? Bert and I fixed some old cars together and just kind of patched it together. And I used to worry about that stuff and now, I, I maybe I don't worry enough. That's what Diane says. <laughs> Me, I worry too much and I always respond and you don't worry enough. <laughs> yeah, she says, you don't worry enough. And I go, oh, well. <laughs> so so she, she accuses me of lacking worry. But I do think it's, it's easier as, after you've gone through. So we went through some really tough things back in the 90s. And I, I know it changed me permanently. And I can't say I'm so great, brave person. I'm not, right now at the moment, I'm not facing some terrible thing. I was thinking about that when we were on the radio, when um, we were talking about Rick Warren going in front of this King Assad. And we, were, we were talking about that on Jan's show. And I was thinking about it. I, I'm not claiming that I'm some great uh, brain. I don't, know what, I don't know what I'd say. I know what I'd have to say. And that would be the gospel. But I, I think my prayer is, Lord, don't put me in front of a king because I think I'm a chicken. <laughs> but I believe the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Now, think, I was thinking about this. When you're going to be brought before kings, don't think ahead of time about what you're going to say. But the, and it says here, for a testimony for me. So we know from Acts that when you get in front of the king, you're supposed to testify about Jesus Christ. Paul did that consistently, so did everybody else. But I think I was just contemplating this and not wanting to brag about myself because I don't know. I haven't been in front of a king. Maybe I'd be a bigger coward than anybody else. I don't know. I don't trust myself. But I do trust God who raises the dead. 
And it says, don't think about it ahead of time. And I think that the reason you shouldn't think about it ahead of time is because you'll come up with some clever thing to say to get you out of the situation. You'll, you'll come up with a way of sort of testifying, but not really testifying. But if you don't think about it and the Holy Spirit gives you the words, the words will be the gospel. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he testifies of me. Yes. I think that if we, the more that we have an eternal perspective and we really are looking forward to the hope of being raised from the dead and having an eternal hope that the threat of lack of car payments, the threat of whatever pain, the threat of losing your home, the threat of uh, being sick or losing limb or whatever the threat is, in a hundred years these threats will be, none of us will be experiencing these threats, none of us here. And the eternal knowing that he raises us from the dead and we can look beyond the immediate afflictions, that changes everything because we can go forward with boldness and courage because how how bad can it be? Yeah, and you know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a, that's why I think I feel better now. Um, I mean, there's things to worry about. There's plenty of things to worry about, but the more we emphasize the gospel, I think the gospel makes a coward into a brave man. You look at Peter. Look at Peter. That's another, I was just thinking about that. We are thinking about don't think ahead of time what you're going to say. Peter turned into a chicken in front of a little slave girl that couldn't do anything to him. The little slave girl says, aren't you one of those? No, oh, I never knew him. Don't, don't, don't ask me about that. He, he's, he's cowards out in front of a slave girl, but he receives the Holy Spirit. And then later, through Acts... He boldly testifies in front of people who have the power to kill him. What's the difference between Peter, a coward in front of the slave girl, Peter bold in front of dignitaries and people that want to kill him? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. And if you, and so when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will give you the words, that I believe that's literally true. And what he gives you is courage to speak the words you already know to be true. The gospel. It's very simple. Yes. I was thinking, you know, I listened to the show yesterday and, uh, you know, I learned about Rick Warren's trip to Syria. And uh, just kind of the same point that Keith was making. Now, I don't know if he preached the gospel to Assad. I'm doubting he didn't because he doesn't preach the gospel from his own pulpit. So I can't imagine he's going to do it to Bashir. But, but saying that, you know, his goal is to eradicate the five giants, you know, poverty, disease, all these things. Well, let's say he was successful. So what? If that was successful, all those people are still condemned. They still have again. no eternal life. Yeah. So that's why I find his goals to be so troubling, because he's not preaching the gospel. His primary goal is to go over to these foreign countries and get along because he wants to create some peace, even if it's a Muslim, to create a second reformation. Right. A reformation of what? Well, he says the reformation of what the church does. So the church becomes more of a social service agency. Now, another thing, we'll get back to the sentence of death here. Think about that. We're living as a sentence of death, but we have a hope of the resurrection. Now, this is true if you're 20 years old, never been sick a day of, of your life, and you're vigorous, and you have, and you figure you should live another 60 years minimally. You don't know that. Your life is a little vapor. 
And it passes away just like that. You don't know that you're going to be here even tomorrow. So the sentence of death is hanging over all of us. The young and the vigorous and the elderly with life-threatening things going on or anybody that may have life-threatening things. It's still true for every last one of us. But if we have the hope of the resurrection, we have everything. Now, if we don't give people that, here's what I was going to say. You know, what you were saying is absolutely right. We're not giving them the number one thing we have to offer. Now, do you have to go into the left-wing social gospel to do good deeds? No. Because as a matter of fact, Christians with real gospel have done good deeds for the whole history of the church. Christians have built hospitals. Christians have done medical missions. Christians have given food to the poor. Christians have given clothing. Christians, in fact, because God changes our life, He motivates us to give not only to take care of our own family, but to take care of people in our neighborhood and generally be good, kind, giving, alms-doing people. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's transformed us, not because somebody lays guilt over us that if we don't do enough good deeds, then we can be a good Christian. So you don't have to go to the left-wing social gospel to do good deeds. Uh, Christians always have done good deeds. Nor do you have to organize the Muslims and Hindus and everybody to do good deeds. You don't have to do that. It's not, it's not necessary. Okay. Um, you got the mic? Uh, Kathy, you want to say something? Let me read the rest of the phrase as the mic's going over there. In order that we should not trust in ourselves. So we're going to look up some verses about that. Well, hold on a second. I want to hand out some verses. Uh, Denise, do you want to do Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24? And Linda, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 7. And Diane, Luke, Luke 18, 9 through 14. And Stephan, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Oh yeah, that's the one we were alluding to. Okay, so uh, as they're looking those up, yes? I just want to comment. The one thing is that the world runs from that too. And not only that, when my brother, Ron, began to get MS, the first thing is, why did God do this to us? I mean, that's the first thing I heard. And that's the first thing I heard from my other brothers, my other members of the family, was why did God do this to us? Yeah, people that go through things say, no, why me and why was God doing this? Now, um, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book called When Good Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his answer to it was that was because God's trying to help, but he can't. He's lacking power. So we got to help God eradicate evil in the world. That's Rabbi Kushner. Now, Norm Geiser, we had a videotape in our library, which is boxed up so you can't get it. But <laughs> it's in storage. Well, someday it'll be back out again. And Norm Geisler was debating Rabbi Kushner. And Norm was very bold. He said, well, i got to tell you something, Rabbi. Uh, bad things don't happen to good th- people because they're no good people. <laughs> and he quoted and he quoted. And he quoted out of, out, of the, out of Tanakh. He said, he quoted out of Rabbi's own scripture. He says, there's no good, no, not one. So the big answer is, why do so many good things happen to bad people? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I was talking to a woman on Saturday, and I said, we have afflictions. The reason we have afflictions are that we live in a world that God allows sin in. If God wiped out sinners upon demand, the second you sin, you're gone. You wouldn't have any afflictions. You wouldn't exist. The, the concept that we exist to uh, to feel and experience afflictions are because God is a loving God and He allows and tolerates sin so that some at least will embrace the gospel 
and come to him Amen. because if he killed sinners when they sinned, none of us would be here. That's a good point. The reason what a lot, most of the afflictions, there are natural afflictions which are still caused by the fall, and then there's what humans do to one another which creates the most of them. And you gotta, that's a good point. God allows these things because he allows time for people to repent. And if once he ends it all, there's no more people being saved. Okay, now the first passage is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. I think we got some really good passages here. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in the, his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in this I delight, says the Lord. Wow. No glory in your strength, your riches, or anything else you got going for this. There's only one thing to glory for, and that is that you understand God who shows loving kindness. Great passage. appreciated the fact that you brought up scripture so much in what the conver- the conversation you had with Jan so not only you know we're, it was sort of condemning that uh, healing practice but then gave scripture to oh the, the inner healing yeah yes. yeah because you know I had an opportunity to witness to two Jehovah Witnesses and uh, I can never remember what they believe, what the Mormons believe, and you know. So I, I would get so stressed that I would never want to talk to a Mormon or Jehovah. But so I just, you know, from knowing Scripture, just preach the word, and so there. <laughs> yeah, here's what the <laughs> Bible that says. Is yeah, good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought we had a good conversation about, uh, and the, some of the callers had some interesting things to say too. Yeah. I mean, I, Yeah, and that one lady said that she her daughter wouldn't talk to her. Yeah, because what happens is you this uh, inner healing theory assumes that whatever's wrong with you, your parents or whoever else was important, you did it to you. Well, the more you believe that, the more it's going to alienate you from your parents, and uh, it's not it's not helpful because uh, there's only one kind of parent in the whole world, and that's sinners. All right. And um, so, it's no shock you were raised by sinners. <laughs> That's like uh, Michelle Mangawadi's uh, explanation of the fall. Adam, she says, he says, Eve uh, tempted Adam to sin, and then her curse was she was married to a sinner. <laughs> he didn't treat her right after that. Okay, the next passage was uh, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is a man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. Okay, so there's a, in a sense you have the gospel right there. In fact, you can preach the gospel out of Jeremiah 17. If you just didn't know any other scriptures, you can preach the gospel out of Jeremiah 17. 
because that's really the essence of repentance. And I explain it that way many times in my sermons, that repenting is, is basically going from trusting in man to trusting in God on his terms. So if you trust in man, I don't care how good the man is, whether you're trusting self or some man-made system of religion or some works, it's a curse. You're cursed for trusting man. But if you trust God on his term, you're blessed. And that blessing is not based on the circumstances, but it's based on whether you know God. As it said in, in uh, it said that in Jeremiah 9, that first passage. You know, don't, don't boast in your circumstances, but boast that you know the Lord. Okay, and then Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Wow, wow, wow. That's outstanding. That's, how clear can it get? It's interesting, the one guy's praying to himself. Yeah, the Pharisee prays to himself, God. <laughs> he's praying to himself, and then he's recounting all his good deeds. <laughs> Self, thou hast fasted twice a week. <laughs> all right, got that going for you. <laughs> but do you know God? If, you're, if you know God, then you are painfully aware of your own sinfulness. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, who has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's where Paul goes later in Second Corinthians. I thought of a passage here in Second Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we find a theme all the way through Second Corinthians of not living for ourselves. Okay? Not living for self, but living for God. And the only thing that will ever change that is the power of the cross in our lives in which we're crucified to the world, made alive to God. And so... One lesson that everyone has to learn is that you really can't trust self. Self is not reliable. And the more trust we put in self, the more we fail. And the more trust we put in self, the worse it is when we succeed. Because it takes us further away from God. The curse of success, it's a curse if you're trusting self. Because then 
Your success makes you think you're okay and you don't need God. And Jesus talked about that, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Okay, so we trust God who raises the dead. Now we go to verse 10 here, which says, who delivers us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and He will yet deliver us. Now all of a sudden I'm ringing here again. Okay, so uh, this is uh, tenses of deliverance. Who delivered, who will deliver, and will yet deliver. Paul is confident, obviously, in God's deliverance. And when it says, He whom we've set our hope is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense. Perfect means that something happened at a point in time in the past, but the effects continue on to the present time. So that means that at some point, that whatever point Paul set his hope in Christ, which I believe is recounted for us in Acts 9, from that time on, he continues to have hope in Christ. And so this deliverance from death uh, may be deliverance from the peril of temporal death in certain circumstances, which Paul certainly went through with his stonings and his uh, threats. And when he was in Philippians, he didn't know if he, I mean, when he wrote Philippians, he was in jail and didn't know if he was going to live or die. And so he had a lot, his, his life was hanging in the balance for a lot of different times. Shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and imprisonment where they may execute him. So here's a man who's lived a lot of his adult life under the threat of death. So it certainly was real enough to him, literally. But I think that this who will deliver us goes all the way into eternity because of the hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so we have hope from the resurrection of the dead. And when Paul was on trial in Acts, he says, I stand here on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And he said, that's what I'm standing here for. And then, of course, there started a debate between the Pharisees uh, and Sadducees, because Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were saying, well, maybe this guy's not so bad. <laughs> he believes in a resurrection. Now, um, I have a passage, uh, Leif, do you want to look up 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18? By the way, welcome back. Leif is here from, what, Boston? Okay. 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was, received out, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, so God had rescued him, but ultimately safely brings him into the kingdom. Now, um, Nicole, could you do Psalm 34 and verse 19? A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Oh. So the, the Bible knows about such a thing as a righteous sufferer, right? So the righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Why? Because the person who is righteous is not somebody who has done more good deeds than other people, but it's a person who trusts in God. Righteousness in the Bible, the righteous one in the Bible is not somebody who is better at doing good works, but it's somebody who's trusting in the Lord. The wicked trust in themselves. Yes? I mean, 
I've seen and heard a lot of testimonies that, you know, I was under affliction and God delivered me, which is fine. But I think what that's really saying is that we have afflictions until we die, and the righteous man is delivered from his afflictions because he has hope in the resurrection, and ultimately we'll have a body that doesn't have any pain. The Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and that's the, the real afflictions that we can, or the real hope that we share with others isn't that I was out of a job and God gave me one. That's fine. But the reason that's important is because God will not only deliver me out of unemployment, but he will deliver me from this body that I have and give me a new one. And the, the, any any testimony that lacks that is no different than than anybody else that that a non-Christian. Yeah, the pragma- otherwise you just have a pragmatic test of truth. I was thinking about that when we were talking about this healing of memories on the radio. The, when I uh, debated this, I, mainly by email, whenever I write articles, pe- people... What happens is people usually that agree with me that are my main readers, they print them out and give them to people that don't agree with me. Okay? And that's when I get the nasty emails from. You know? And, uh, and they come back the, the, on this inner healing, and I've written several articles on this, the comeback is always the pragmatic argument. It worked for me. In other words, I was distressed and I had pain and I went through this process and I felt better. And that is the argument that you get. But you can't, th- th- there's a real reason why that pragmatic test is going to fail because you get positive testimonies like that from every world religion, every therapeutic process. You can talk to people in Baha'i that are happy, or you can go over here in Chanhassen, and they got the, the Ek, the, the guy, he used to be on one of my cable channels, this Ek guy. Yeah, Eckenkar, he's like the head Eck or whatever. I don't know what he's called. But anyhow, he was telling about all this, you know, soul travel, all the stuff they do, and they say it works. And you can get testimonials out of anybody about anything. And that's how these infomercials work. They go out and find the man on the street. Well, here, look through these sunglasses. Oh, wow. You know, 1995. Don't don't call yet. There's more. <laughs> you also get. And so this whole principle that there's somebody that'll give a testimony about anything that worked is, is very obvious throughout the society. So the real issue is why should Christians lower ourselves to nothing more than what these guys on the infomercial are saying? It works. Try it. It, it works. Well, no, we're saying it's demonstrated to be true from a man who God raised from the dead. That's why we have our hope in Christ, because of the objective evidence through the resurrection. Ronco doesn't have that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it comes okay, down. Okay, Ronco. <laughs> All right. a, lot of, a lot of it comes down to how do you define work? And what is something that works? Because if all it is is here and now, then... A lot of the stuff would work on a certain sense, but if there is really an eternity, then the definition of work that they're using is one that's fundamentally flawed. I was having a conversation with my roommate a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about how he's not a Christian. And we were talking about, well, my, he had mentioned something about the effect of my worldview really works for me, and it lets me live a happy life and get along with other people, and I find it works. And the key issue isn't whether it allows one to live a happy life. It's when, whether it accounts for eternity or not, and whether that works yeah. or not. 
Absolutely. Uh, that's a good point, Leif. I wrote a, a paper on pragmatism. When I was in seminary, I, I read William James, who uh, proposed a pragmatic test of truth. By the way, the philosophers, the pragmatic test of truth has been rejected even by the world because it's just been shot full of holes. So James came up with the pragmat pragmatic test of truth, but it's, it doesn't work. <laughs> All right. There's a little irony there. It, it doesn't hold up logically. And when I wrote my article, I, I made the point that you just made, Lay, and that is when we're talking about religion, we're making claims that go beyond this life. All right? If you're a Hindu and you believe in reincarnation, then you're claiming, your claim is that there are these processes of reincarnation that you go through and you have to learn lessons to become a better person before you get out of the cycle of reincarnation and find your nirvana or, or what, however it goes. And, and there's, there's claims. All religions make truth claims. Islam makes truth claims. Buddhism makes truth claims. Now, the reason a pragmatic test of truth won't work in religion is because their claims go beyond this life. All right? So you're, you're staking work on too short of a time, just like Leif said. So let me, uh, let, me, let me just give an illustration. Let's say the Christian claim is, is appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment. All right? So our claim is you have to be right with God through Jesus Christ now. Otherwise, when you die, you face judgment, no second chance. That's what we claim. Now, the Hindus claim that you can come back in different forms until you get it right. All right? So here's why pragmatism can't solve the issue. If the Christian's right, the Hindu's doomed. Because he doesn't get to come back for the second life. The whole thing was a lie to start with. So we need some way to know now, right now, before we decide what religion we're going to live out, or any religion, we need to have some way to know whether it's right now, because it has uh, impact in eternity. Right, and we claim that only, only Christianity has a Savior, a God-man who came from eternity, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, who died for sins, and was raised before witnesses, and we're willing to put the credibility of everything we say and hinge it on objective history, that God has proved, given proof to all men through a man who is raised from the dead. And if it could be proven that Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are all people most miserable, and Paul said that himself. So we're not saying try it and see if it works. We're saying Christ was raised, and he says, believe on me. I am the resurrection and the life. Does that make sense? Okay, so these uh, inner healing things that depend on it works, again, you, there's, that's not a valid test of truth. Because it could be delusional. And people have asked me this, and literally, well, why would Satan give me an experience that's a good experience? You got an answer? Yes. I just wanted to say that um, I have that conversation a lot with people um, because the Lord rescued me from myself out of psychotherapy and theophostics and all of that. And people will say, but Nicole, it worked for me, or I had this great experience. And I always say, but what is your goal? Why do you think that it worked for you? Was it because you just wanted to get rid of a painful memory or because you want to trust in God? Because what saved me out of it was trusting in his word and what his promises are to me, not a technique. 
And so in the sense as when you think about it, it doesn't really work if it's causing them to trust in a technique instead right. of his word. And right. that's the whole point. They can have a great experience, emotional experience that deceives them into thinking this worked and God healed me. But it didn't because they're not trusting in his word. They're trusting in a technique. Right. Satan was willing to give somebody a good experience to, de- to deceive them. Um, Robert, you want to bring the mic back there to Ryan? We're talking about trusting in God rather than self. And uh, for those of you who got here late, we're in 2 Corinthians 2. We were talking about verse 9 and 10 and the fact that Paul's uh, sentence of death led him to trust God who raises the dead. And so we're talking about trusting God rather than trusting self. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing how how many we, there's so many experience-driven forms of Christianity that it, it 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 all connects in some way, shape, or form. And there's all a bottom line. And I can remember a few years ago, I was I was helping a, an individual who was coming out of alcoholism, and he had been steeped in the ultra-charismatic movement, and he had had an experience of being slain in the spirit like four years ago. And I, you know, I kind of started to talk to him about that, and he was just convinced that was the presence of God. And we kind of started to unpack it, and he, uh, finally a light went on, and he said, you know what, the last four years I have been pursuing that experience again. That is what I have been pursuing rather than pursuing a relationship with Christ through growing in the faith through his word, through prayer, and through fellowship, he had been thrown off course because of this experience. That's what he was pursuing rather than Christ. And, you know, it it all is the same. You see that in all these experience-based religions. It's not rooted in the historical incarnation of Christ and our relationship with him. Yeah, well, and I shared my story in one of these articles. It's called The Bondage Makers. I, I believed in therapeutic exorcism for five years because of experiences. And to my shame, it took experiences to get me out of it. Um, you know, yeah, bad ones. You know, the good ones made me believe in it. The bad ones made me doubt it. And Scripture finally settled the question. Now, God in his mercy lets us have a bad experience, so he drives back to the scripture where I should have been the first place. Okay, yes. I just wanted to say really quick to back up what Ryan was saying. Um, a lot of people that I've known that were doing, uh, that have done theophostics, I watched them become addicted to it, where they, they had this rush from having what seemed like a healing experience to them. Now, every time they had a bad feeling, they had to do theophostics because they had to get that feeling back again. And I thought, man, this is no different than shooting up cocaine. You're, you're becoming addicted to a technique and you're not trusting in the Lord. Well, they're being sold a bill of goods. They're told they can have maintenance-free, perfect freedom and no emotional pain for the rest of their life. That's what's been they're told they're going to get. That's the goal. And um, as I point out, that's... It's not a reasonable goal. It's not a biblical goal. Emotional pain isn't a bad thing always. Paul had emotional pain over the lost condition of his fellow Jews. And that unceasing sorrow in his heart that he talks about in Romans 9 caused him to go through a lot 
of danger to preach the gospel. And he kept going in the synagogues from one city to the next to preach the gospel to the Jews because of his pain about their lost condition. And even when they chased him out of town and tried to kill him, he'd go back and do it in the next town. So pain isn't bad. Uh, could, uh, you want to bring back to Jan Hickey? We haven't heard from her yet. Uh, you said that Satan is willing to give a good experience in order to deceive. What do you say to the person that says, well, okay, while that's true, God is still in control and he has allowed it. How do you refute that? Well, yes, I preached on that last week. It says because God will send them a deluding influence because they receive not the love of the truth so as to be saved. And God not only can allow it, He can send it. He can be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets because Ahab didn't want to serve God on his terms. And, and, And so, yes, God can allow it and use it in order to bring delusion to people that don't love the truth, that should scare us back into the gospel. And it should cause us even more to not trust our experience. All right? It's called a judgment of hardening. Um, okay. One thing that with this whole healing um, uh, teaching and everything, one thing it did was when I became a Christian, everyone was telling, even in the process of begin, becoming a Christian, everyone was saying, you can be healed of your seizures. I mean, that's what I heard from a lot of Christians. And the thing is, is I was one thing aware, wary of, and that was the fact that it would scare my family half out of their wits if I went off my medicine. And it did, because I had that experience. And I was just going around half-dazed. Yeah. So they were telling you that you could be healed so you didn't need your medicine. Well, I know God does heal people, and we can ask to be healed, and we call the elders and pray. Uh, but in the context of trusting God, we accept healing or whatever He brings our way because we're trusting God. This is the exact passage I was using with the man that was bringing healing and claiming to bring uh, miracles with his hands in Deuteronomy 13. It says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true, which is what we're talking about, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the fact that they come true is almost a bait to lead you away. And if we embrace the message and the messenger of such a thing, it will lead us, you know, we can have a, a healthy body and eternal damnation. I don't think it's a very good, good trade. For those that got here late, who were you talking to when you told them this? It was the, one of the speakers of the alternative medicine uh, conference going on in Minneapolis this weekend. Yeah, right. Yeah, a guy was into some kind of psychic healing, right? So Keith told the psyche healer that he could be going to hell even when he's healed. (laughs) He was nice. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, to maybe answer that other question is that when I was in the New Age and I was doing psychic readings, I was doing good things for people. And many people would call me and say, Chief, thank you for that reading. 
So people then after I became a Christian said, well, you know, why would if they, they were demons that you're speaking to, why would they do good things? And it goes to her point there is that, well, because it keeps them from seeking the truth of God's word. So when you're doing contemplative, what does it do? It keeps you from seeking the truth of God's word. Both of them work, but both of them lead you away from the truth. Right. And you have the thing you say in your seminar about it was, what, what it felt good? What was your little sting? It, uh, you know, it, it was real, it was good, therefore it must be God. Right. That's how, that's how Brian thought when he's in the New Age. It was real, it was good, it must be God. But it turned out it was real, it seemed good, and it wasn't God, right? <laughs> it was Satan. <laughs> I just want to say again really quick, uh, to add on what Brian said, a lot of times the therapist or whoever is doing something like theophostics or some kind of New Age technique, they also become just as addicted to the technique because they get a good feeling from doing a good thing for someone else. Yeah, yeah. And it's a power thing for them. Well, the delusions that we live in that have actually gotten stronger at the end of the age are very, very seductive. They're real. They're not just sleight of hand. When I was preaching last week on Second Thessalonians, I said that Satan has dunamis power. Dunamis, workings of power that will be done through the lawless one that will be so convincing that it will actually deceive everyone in the entire world other than born-again Christians. And we may find out there's a lot less of them than what we thought. Because, you know, uh, you've probably heard the story of the polls of the born-again Christians, and a lot of people, they just use the terminology, they haven't truly been converted. So we're out of time, according to my watch. Um, next week, we'll start in 2 Corinthians 1.11. Today, I'm preaching from Exodus 1. We're going to start a new book.